You are listening to You Were Made for This, the podcast to help transform your relationships into the best they can be. Welcome to You Were Made for This. If you find yourself wanting more from your relationships, you've come to the right place. Here you'll discover practical principles you can use to experience the life-giving relationships you were made for. And now here's your host, John Sertalic. Hey, thank you, Carol. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 21, the most important relationship of all. Am I the only one, or do you ever think about how the trajectory of your life has been shaped by a single event you experienced many years ago? And how when that event occurred, you had no idea how it would alter the rest of your life. Each year when tomorrow comes around, April 4th, I can't help but think of the most important event of my life that happened on that day. Just thinking about April 4th will often get me teary-eyed, even after all these years. What happened on that April 4th still moves me because it involves a relationship. A relationship that after many years continues to grow. I wrote about it in a book I had published in 2016, Them, The Richer Life Found in Caring for Others. I'd like to share an excerpt from it that describes what happened that day. I'll also have a link to the book in the show notes. Before I begin, I need to tell you about Carol, as some of you have asked, who in the world is Carol that I mention at the beginning of every episode? I've waited until now to tell you about Carol because she is a key player in the story I'm about to share. My friend Carol is the person who introduces each episode. She does voiceovers and commercials for a Christian radio station in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, that is run by her husband, Terry. Last year, as I was telling Terry and Carol about the podcast I was starting, they both suggested Carol could record the introduction. She also does marketing at the station, and before this, she hosted a new time TV show in Fargo, North Dakota, where Terry was the producer. I first met Carol through my wife Janet before we were married. Janet met Carol in a class they were taking together their freshman year in college. So that's the background to the story I'm going to read from my book, Them. This is from Chapter 7, entitled, Running on Empty. I was all of 19 years old and a freshman in college on April 4, 1968, when it all started. I sat in a student union waiting for my girlfriend Janet to get out of class. We had met when we were 13 years old in her father's garage to work on our freshman homecoming float with others in our class. I had no interest in making faux flowers out of tissue paper and stuffing them in a chicken wire, but I was interested in getting out of the house to meet girls, so this was the price I had to pay. Four years later, we went off to college together. Then we married each other. As I waited for Janet on that April afternoon of our freshman year in college, I took notes on one of the books from the reading list for a history course I was taking. Across the table from me sat our mutual friend, Carol, who had happened to be first runner-up in Miss Sheboygan, Wisconsin, the previous year. That was about as close to anyone famous as I was ever going to get. She was one of those attractive girls guys rarely ask out 
because they think beauty like hers had been spoken for long ago. It hadn't. Carol, Janet, and I often hung out together in those early days of our relationship that, as of this writing, has seen 46 Aprils come and go since our first one together. Janet spoke to Carol just the other night on the phone. I could tell it was Carol by how Janet laughed. Loud, uproarious laughter, born of four-plus decades of marinating in a savored relationship together. Back now to that first April in 1968. Carol was engrossed in her studying, as was I. Still an English major at the time, minoring in history, I soon reversed the two to minor in English instead. It was the only way I could avoid taking a course on Chaucer required of all English majors. Chaucer wrote in Middle English, and the little I saw of it scared me. Shakespeare was hard enough in Elizabethan English. What a wimp I was not to tackle Middle English. So instead of studying the Canterbury Tales that afternoon, I poured over the more readable Rats, Lice, and History, the role of diseases in changing the course of Western Europe. While taking notes, my pen ran out of ink. I didn't have a spare, so I interrupted Carol and asked her if she had an extra pen I could borrow. Sure, she said. There should be one in my purse. Help yourself. But I might lose a finger, I thought. Or maybe find something in there I had to ignore, or pretend I didn't know about without my face turning red. But I needed the pen, and since Carol showed no interest in saving me from potential embarrassment, I pretended not to feel uncomfortable as I opened her purse. In those days, I spent a lot of time pretending I wasn't feeling what I was feeling. As I opened her purse, hoping to make a quick strike to retrieve anything at all resembling a pen, I spotted a small, mustard-colored booklet entitled, Have You Heard of the Four Spiritual Laws? It grabbed my attention. Hey, Carol, what's this? I asked with a great deal of curiosity. The title intrigued me. Spiritual Laws? How 1950s, I thought. Someone from the Eisenhower administration must have written this, or maybe a scriptwriter for Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best. It was late 1960s, after all, with free love, hippies, and hate Ashbury. Laws were made to be broken, but now someone had written a booklet about four spiritual laws. It seemed out of place in the anti-war protest era of the time. The Occupy movement of the 2010s could take a lesson from the anti-war movement of the 60s and 70s. Frankly, the Occupy crowd needs to dress better for their protests to be taken seriously. They all look too much like those of us just occupying desks, factories, church pews, and suburban homes. Here's my advice. Grow longer hair, smoke something, stop shaving, stop showering, and then you'll start to look like a real protest movement. Another thing that would help would be music. We had great anti-war, anti-everything music in the late 60s, but I can't think of one Occupy Movement song. Maybe Arlo Guthrie or Bob Dylan could help. I'd bet they'd love a chance to get out of the nursing home for a day to head down to a wheelchair-accessible recording studio. Back again to 1968. Carol stopped what she was doing, took out the mustard-colored booklet, and asked me the question on the cover. Have you heard of the four spiritual laws? I hadn't. 
The Ten Commandments, sure. Maybe these four spiritual laws were the abridged version. Maybe six of the commandments got demoted and reclassified as six suggestions, like Pluto going from a planet to a dwarf planet a few years ago. Kara went through each of the laws with me. The first one says, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. I always thought God loved humanity, but I never considered it was also an individual love, one directed at people personally. This was new to me. God, I thought, was too busy to be involved with an individual. After all, he's got to keep the solar system in order. I know he can multitask, but this seemed a stretch to me. I had also never heard the idea that he had a, quote, wonderful plan for my life. I wondered what that plan was. It sounded a bit like an Amway presentation. Law 2, Carol explained, states, Man is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life. Yeah, that makes sense. I get that. If I were God, I wouldn't want to hang out with certain people I know either. I never thought that being separated from God would interfere with his plan for my life. I never thought I could botch things up for God and therefore with his plan that he has for me. And what exactly is this plan? Carol went on to clarify the third law, which reads, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love for you and his plan for your life. But I thought if I were a good, moral person, that would please God. Isn't helping people enough, along with not robbing banks and things like that? I thought that if the good things outweighed the bad, I'd be okay. Carol showed me a simple diagram in which God was on the top, man was on the bottom, and there was a big gap in between. Jesus, she said, was the only way to bridge the gap. And there's that plan again. At age 19, I already had a plan for my life, so I wondered what God's plan was. The fourth law, Carol said, is we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then we can know and experience God's love and his plan for our lives. This was the most startling law of all. I had no clue that this is how it worked. The first three laws were about what God does, but this one is about what I have to do. I had no idea that God wants a personal relationship with us. Carol explained that God loves us, but we most often don't love him back, which is what separates us from him. He didn't give up on us, though. He sent his son Jesus to draw us back to himself. He did this because he wants a personal relationship with us. But for this to happen, we have to want it too. Once she finished, I remember feeling incredulous and said something like, Are you kidding me? Is this really true? It was, she assured me. Carol then asked if I was interested in learning more, because if I was, there was a meeting that night where a pastor friend of hers was speaking to explain all of this in more detail. Janet and I were welcome to come, she said. And with that, I left to meet Janet after her class to walk back to our adjacent dorms. Janet, I said, I've just heard the most incredible thing from Carol. 
I repeated back to her the best I could remember of the four spiritual laws. I think I only remembered three of them, but I got the general idea. She was just as intrigued by this discovery as I was. So we decided to attend the meeting to which Carol invited us that Thursday evening. I remember sitting in the meeting enthralled by a thin, older, white-haired man with glasses. Carol's pastor friend from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Reverend Ellis Mooney. We later got to know him, and though Carol affectionately called him Pops, Janet and I always referred to him as Reverend Mooney. Never Ellis like we do today with pastors, not even Pastor Ellis. No, it was Reverend Mooney. Even if he had asked us to call him Ellis, we could no more have felt comfortable doing this than we could have felt calling our social studies teacher from high school, Ron, if we ran into him near the canned vegetables in the grocery store. Actually, you'd be more likely to run into Ron in the beer and wine aisle. Reverend Mooney talked that night about God's desire to have a personal relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ, and how Jesus came to die for all our sins so we could have this kind of relationship with us. I remember thinking, why haven't I heard this before? I mean, after all, I was already 19, had grown up in a mainline denominational church and its parochial grade school, and shouldn't I have known everything by now? What an incredible thing I'd been missing. Carol's white-haired pastor friend from Sheboygan recounted miraculous stories from his life where Christ answered his prayers in remarkable ways that clearly showed he had a deeply personal relationship with Jesus. It was obvious Jesus had a deeply personal relationship with him. I want that too, I thought. When Reverend Mooney finished, he told us we too could have what he had, a personal relationship with Jesus, by confessing our sins and inviting Jesus into our lives as Savior to take control of it. He asked us to close our eyes and then told us if we wanted this same personal relationship, we should silently repeat after him a prayer he was going to say that would invite Jesus into our lives and surrender our lives to him. When he finished, he told us to keep our eyes closed, but if we prayed that prayer, we should raise our hand. My hand went up like a space shuttle blast from Cape Canaveral. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see Janet's hand was raised as well. Unlike others who have heard this same message for centuries, I had no concept of my own personal sin at the time. My concept of sin was as thin as a blade of grass. Don't kill people, don't lie, and don't steal. It wasn't until I started to grow in my faith that I came to understand my sinful nature was more like a thousand-acre sod farm than a single blade of grass. I wanted a relationship with Jesus out of greed and envy for what Ellis Mooney had. I wanted someone to care about me. I wanted someone to do what I asked them. I wanted someone to think about meeting my needs. I want, I want, I want. (laughs) I wanted someone who didn't mind I was born out of wedlock. And above all, I wanted someone who had time for me, who was never too busy or preoccupied with cleaning the house, mowing the grass, or drinking the afternoon away with friends at the corner bar. Jesus seemed like he would be that for me. Never considering until years later, who would I be for him? I decided to give this a try. 
After leaving the meeting that evening in the student union, we noticed something very odd. All the TVs were turned on, which was unusual for this era long before CNN and the 24-hour news cycle of our present day. All the networks were broadcasting the late breaking news of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. earlier that afternoon. We all stood stunned. Our eyes were glued to the TV screens. His life had ended in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4, 1968, the same day my life, my spiritual life, began in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Janet and I met life that same day that he met death. And as I learned many years later, April 4th was also the birth date of Jack Edward Byrd, my birth father. He celebrated his 46th birthday the same day I celebrated my spiritual birth, and which I'm now writing about 46 years later. The coincidence between these events still chills me. One day we will meet our physical death, as Martin Luther King did. But because of the life Janet and I found that night, we live life differently now. We live knowing a God who chose to call an illegitimate and depressed 19-year-old to himself must be a God who truly loves unconditionally. And that is a God I have spent time getting to know ever since. The following fall, after that never-to-be-forgotten April evening, Janet and Carol became roommates. And then a year after that, I replaced Carol as Janet's roommate when we got married. Carol married our friend Terry a year or two later, and the four of us have been friends ever since. A number of years ago, Janet and I met Carol and Terry at a motel in north-central Wisconsin for a getaway weekend in the middle of January. While reminiscing about our college years, the events of that April evening in 1968 came up, at which point Carol reminded me of something I had forgotten. You left out one important part of what happened. Don't you remember the sport coat story? Remember what Pop said to everyone who committed their life to Christ that night? He told everyone who surrendered their life to Jesus to sometime in the next day or so to ask Jesus to reveal himself in a personal way. It all came back to me then. I had gone back to my dorm room that evening and prayed, God, if you are real, please show yourself to me. If what that old white-haired man said is really true, please show me. Within a short time of my prayer, one of the guys on my floor knocked on my door. He said, I need a sport coat for tomorrow night. Do you have one you would sell me? I did a sport coat I had gotten when I was 13 for my 8th grade graduation that no longer fit my 19-year-old body. I had considered throwing it away in the garbage bin just a few days prior. He offered me $20 for it, which at the time felt more like $220, all for something I was ready to throw away. So I took his $20 for the sport coat as an answer to my prayer that Jesus reveal himself to me. This too chills me when I think about it. We need to remind each other of our own stories. Carol did that for me. Her reminder evoked more reflection and caused me to think back to the risk she took when she went through the Four Spiritual Laws booklet with me so long ago. 
Carol, a relatively new believer in Jesus herself at the time, didn't have all the Christian jargon down yet, and as I later found out, was pretty nervous talking about Jesus. Yet she cared more for me and the state of my soul than she did about her own anxiety. She cared more for me than her worry about what I might think of her. In using an empty pen and a very nervous first runner-up Miss Sheboygan 1967, God reminds me that he uses unlikely means to further his kingdom, and I should be on the watch for where he is working, because he is in everything that is good and right and true and pure. And if God did all this to tell me about himself and what I needed, I can depend on him to continue to care for me and to tell me the other things I need to become more the person he wants me to be and more the person who reflects his image well. Before I close, here's the main takeaway from today's episode, our show in a sentence. The most important relationship of all is our relationship with Jesus. It is the key to a fulfilling life both in this world and in the next world to come. Well, how can you respond to today's show? I just shared the most important relationship story in my life. How about yours? What is an important relationship story you have? Our listeners and I would love to hear it. Please give it some thought and then email your story of a relationship that has impacted your life for the better. You can send it to me at john at caringforothers.org. Coming up next week, there's more to be said about the role of stories in our relationships, and that's what we will be doing next time. Thank you for listening in to today's show. I hope you found it encouraging to think back to the stories that have shaped your life. May the stories yet to be written about our relationships bring life and encouragement to each of us. And now to close, here is our relationship quote of the week. We need to remind each other of our own stories. And if that quote sounds familiar, it's from the excerpt from my book I just read. Well, that's it for today. I look forward to connecting with you next week. Goodbye for now.